For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Tonight's chant will be the Metta Sutta, but we will begin with the repentance verse, which we chant three times. I'll put those words on the screen. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong and high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetite. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death.
May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to... Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita. Whenever he is ready, Tigan will introduce tonight's speaker. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Um, for those of you who don't know him, I wanted to just mention a little bit about Levi Smith. He's an artist. Um, I like his work a lot. Um, he's uh, part of our Hyde Park group uh, uh, for many years, a regular at, at the Hyde Park Rockefeller Chapel group. And also he has sat numbers of sessions at our Irving Park uh, 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 temple back in the old days when we had a temple on Irving Park Road. So I'm very happy that Levi is here to give a talk tonight. Thank you, Levi. Thank you, Tigan. Welcome, everyone. Um, I wanted to begin um, by saying that I was inspired by being asked to do this talk on Labor Day to uh, think about talking about uh, right livelihood. And it turned out that um, Tigan gave a talk yesterday on that very subject. And I'm very happy he did because it really helped me um, focus my thoughts, um, both from the, the talk itself and from the comments that were made uh, and responses to that were made to his very, very uh, inclusive talk about uh, right livelihood. Um, what I want to do um, today is approach the subject from a slightly different angle than he did. Um, and um, I think that'll become clear um, as I proceed, but if you didn't hear Tigan's talk, you'll be able to hear it, and I really encourage you to do so. Uh, it was a wonderful talk. The title is Work, Essential Work in Actualizing the Fundamental Point, and it actually is a talk that comes out of um, the last year and a half particularly, uh, and all of the strains and tensions that um, we've all felt uh, around uh, COVID, around the changes to uh, work, um, and um, even though I'm, I'm actually retired, um, I um, 
am a painter. I, I taught art history for many years. I'm a painter now. And uh, I have that practice. And that was a practice that was very disturbed. And it was disturbed partly by just the, the kind of the tension surrounding uh, COVID. Um, that was not the case for some artists who seemed to find it an occasion to really go into their studios and just work. Uh, and I think that's very impressive. Um, but in my own case, um, it was uh, complicated both by just my reaction to COVID and the various things going on and uh, by um, family events, including the birth of our first granddaughter and the needs of our um, my, my daughter and her partner um, for help um, in moving um, and um, actually looking after the child as she got started in her residency in, in uh, psychiatry. And um, further by the um, illness and death of my uh, mother-in-law at the age of 98, um, she didn't die of COVID, but she died just out of old age eventually. Uh, I will say that the, the COVID, the restrictions of COVID were enormously um, harmful to her in the sense she was a very social person. And even at age 98, she um, went out and took care of um, uh, babies at the uh, hospital, newborn babies, and, and worked at the food bank and things like that. And all of that was interrupted. And, and so she was really isolated. And it's those sorts of peripheral kind of events on effects on people that I think um, the, we're, we're still kind of coming to terms with in terms of the ongoing um, um, uh, effects of um, the pandemic. Um, so I've been thinking about work and, and part of the reason I've been thinking about it was because my work as I saw it then was painting, but then it got interrupted as I saw it um, by looking after this child and uh, caring, helping to care um, for my uh, mother-in-law. And I came to realize kind of that things switched around for me in the process of, of all of this, where I came to see kind of the shallowness of my own thinking about, about work and, and the responsibilities of work and um, the term, essential workers became absolutely fascinating to me. Um, and so I want to talk about um, that category in some detail. Um, and um, I think, in fact, maybe, and I'm going to ask your indulgence because some of this I will read because I, I wrote it out <laughs> and there's a fair amount to it. And I want to try and get through it in plenty of time so people can, can talk um, about it or about and offer their uh, suggestions and comments. Anyways, I think uh, perhaps the most important realization uh, that the pandemic um, presented uh, to us in regard with work was um, this discovery and elaboration of the category of essential worker. Um, I did a little research on it and uh, the first Use, that's not the first use of that term. In fact, during World War II, uh, a whole class of factory workers were designated as essential workers, and they could be requisitioned. That is, they could be moved from one plant to another, from one type of work to another in order to supply the needs of, of war material. Um, and in the 1940s, um, labor unions were not as strong as they might be in various places. And so uh, and of course, this was a war that was going on. So um, it was a rather different situation. Um, and the pandemic, of course, is a different kind of war. Um, but today, the category of essential worker, as it's defined, uh, really represents what is, in fact, the largest category of workers uh, in the United States. And the fascinating thing about this is that 
um, these workers, essential as they are, <clears throat> and I'm probably repeating things that everybody knows, but I think it's worth repeating them. I think they've been kind of greased past in a lot of ways. Anyways, is that these workers are paid less and have less benefits um, and job security than most so-called inessential workers, um, although they don't call themselves that. Um, so essential workers really was a category that allowed for um, people to be required to be at work. It allowed for um, people to have to work extra hours. And many of these people were not able to um, take time off. Um, they were not able because they didn't couldn't afford it. Uh, many of them, I think the figure is something like 60% had no health insurance at all. So they were also limited in what they could do in that regard. Um, and this lack of um, job security within the category of, of um, essential workers um, even extended to doctors and uh, now extends to doctors and university professors, teachers, and uh, nurses. So there's this very strange disconnect between the sudden discovery of the vital importance of um, sanitation workers, hospital orderlies, grade school teachers, public transportation uh, workers, store clerks, and their lack of financial support um, by our society. Many of these workers, as I said, had no option to work. And walking out on your balcony to salute the exhausted workers uh, leaving the hospitals at the end of their shifts was was heartwarming, but in a way, it was not the kind of support that probably many of these people would have really, really found um, helpful. And if you think about it, um, assigning the term caretaker or caregiver to a particular type of work, particular line of work, and it was assigned in this case to many essential workers, um, is a little strange. Um, shouldn't everyone care? Don't, does anybody, doesn't everyone care? So called dirty work also had, at least in the United States, very little respect. And that refers to people such as orderlies and asylums to um, the penal system and the workers that um, work in that and to other professions as well. But perhaps it's time I'd say to, um, redefine what is truly dirty. Um, dirt, after all, is uh, the vital medium for nurturing all life. At one time, and now I'm going to talk to kind of the ground of work, and I, this is kind of potted little history that I put together of, of concepts of work, um, which is not by any means inclusive, totally inclusive. At one time, we were linked to work by nature, by the seasons of sowing and reaping and by the aid of animals who are required to be housed and fed and cared for. We live closer to and were more aware of the reality and processes by which living beings that had their own particular lives and identities were converted into our food. Thus, the living context of work was evident. The Industrial Revolution made this context less apparent. Machines run until they don't. They need to be serviced, but the reciprocal relationship that is experienced in tending living beings, their well-being, comfort, thriving, is not evident. The life of machines is not analogous to that of living things. Schedules lost their dependence on seasons and daylight, 
and shifts of workers could be scheduled 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In the process, human beings were recast in the image of the machines they tended. They were seen as cogs in a vast, complex machine, replaceable if they faltered or failed. The necessity of using machines this way, and here I mean 24-7, is found in the enormous upfront cost that they incurred, financed by capitalism and requiring repayment. That's true for the period in which the payment was repaid. But, of course, after that, we're talking greed. Um, In either case, the life of the worker did not figure in any um, determinative way into um, this equation. So we come to the concept of alienated or unalienated work. And Karl Marx is probably still the most trenchant observer of the world of abstraction created by the progress of the Industrial Revolution and capitalism. He introduced the idea of alienated labor, distinguishing four facets of alienation from the product of the labor, from the labor itself, broken as it was into small parts and actions that could seem almost meaningless, Uh, alienation from one's own human nature, working in repetitive ways over and over again, and from society itself. Later philosophers and ethicists have elaborated the distinction of alienated versus unalienated work. The arts and crafts movement at the end of the 19th century, which began in Britain and spread from the West to the East between 1880 and 1920, specifically opposed the methods and products of industrialization with small workshops. The artists often emphasized organic motifs in their art, um, decoration which was often sacrificed in the crude production values of factories, industrial factories. So their response was this kind of emphasis on natural forms and the like. From the early 19th century on, avant-garde art created an ideal of unalienated work in the practice of artists. This was in fact, not even the practice, it was in the the act of being an artist uh, or the state of being an artist. This was a very potent idea and still remains so in the popular imagination. And there's a lot more to be said about this. And that's really a separate lecture, which I want to do at some point. Um, but, um, and I will return to it slightly. But, but first, I want to focus uh, briefly on the ideas expressed in a recent paper published in the journal Ethics, um, which is number 130, July 2020, uh, which is the University of Chicago public- publication. And the author of this essay is Jan Kendiali. And the title of the work is The Importance of Others, Marks on Unalienated Unalienated Production. Kandayali argues that Marx's characterization of alienation has been incorrectly understood. And in fact, it was seen as, it was misunderstood, he would argue, as applying to the production of objects. Workers were alienated because they didn't own the objects they produced. That was the basic idea. And then there there was a further elaboration of it. Um, and that, that idea then, uh, of the various forms of, of alienation, um, which were actually four from the product itself to the worker. I, I went through that before, um, is, um, one that he in a sense inverts so that the fourth category, and it's fascinating to think about this because the way Marx listed them, you could re- either assume that he listed the f- most important first. 
or you could assume that he listed the most important last, um, that there was some kind of hierarchical relationship there, but it's not clear which way it went. Uh, but most people interpreted it as moving from the product to the greater abstraction of society itself. And he, Candiali, inverts this idea and says, um, and that here I'm quoting from the precis of the article. The article suggests that the unalienated production involves realizing oneself through providing others with the goods and services they need for their self-realization. So it's a compact between the worker and the, the, the society that the worker serves. Now, as the author points out, previous criticisms of Marx's concept of alienation argued that people often unwillingly traded occupational alienation for the liberty, or rather willingly traded it, for the liberty its payment afforded. In this sense, they exercised agency over the work. But Kandiyali makes a distinction between what he calls drudgery, that is, work that is simply unpleasant, but that needs to be done. He argues that, in fact, Marx anticipated that most drudgery would in fact be reduced by machines taking it over and that what is left, if performed with the sense of contributing to the well-being of others, can take on the character of unalienated labor, especially if this ethos is held in common. The argument thus shifts from the focus on the character of the work to the intention with which it is performed. With this in mind, I want to come back to right livelihood, uh, Samya Kagiva. Uh, the Princeton Dictionary of Buddhism provides a useful definition of it. Right, Samyak, in this context, is interpreted as, quote, resulting in a decrease in the net suffering experienced by oneself and others, unquote. And it continues Quote, Mahayana interpretations stress the absence of absolutes and the relative merits or demerits of any occupation based on the situation at hand and its larger goal of promoting the welfare of others. The idea of promoting the welfare of others as a primary goal of work is made richer by the attendant rules concerning how to proceed in Buddhism, in specifically Sotodham. I hide Dogen's fascicle on instructions for kitchen work on kitchen work begins with the following regarding the method of serving meals to the community of monks. It is said in the guidelines for Zen monasteries, make respect the essence of this pure practice. He then goes on to spell out in some detail, the application of respect to absolutely every part of meal preparation and even the use of honorifics to refer to the terms and to the actions um, that are to take place. He suggests that, uh, or declares that, um, chanting uh, sutras or um, chanting sutras, for example, is, a, is an okay thing to do while you're working, but otherwise casual conversation um, should be avoided. And in Sashin's, of course, this, this, this um, way of practicing um, food production and, and delivery is, is of course, um, observed to this day. This is good advice that can be applied more generally. Whatever we undertake, we should do respectfully, that is carefully, attentively, focused on the task at hand. Who has not experienced the alienation caused by an inattentive waiter or a doctor or a teacher? How we treat the task itself 
and the materials is significant. It communicates respect not only to the process, but to those it is intended to benefit. It also conveys a selfless attention and devotion to the work. In Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, writing about the practice of Zazen in a section titled No Trace, Suzuki describes how Zazen allows us to experience a state of mind that is calm and quite simple. He notes that during most activities, our attention is distracted. This distraction leaves a trace of our egotistical, distracted, small mind. He writes, in order not to leave any traits, when you do something, you should do it with your whole body and mind. You should be concentrated on what you do. You should do it completely like a good bonfire. The essay that follows No Trace is entitled God Giving and describes the ideal of non-separation, which is also, non, of course, non-attachment. He writes, every existence in nature, every existence in the human world, every cultural work that we create is something which was given or is being given to us, relatively speaking. But as everything is originally one, we are, in actuality, giving out everything. Moment after moment, we are creating something. And this is the joy of our life. But this I which is creating and always giving out something is not the small I. It is the big I. Dogen Zenji said, to give is unattachment. That is, and this is still Suzuki, just not to attach to anything is to give. With the right spirit, Suzuki writes, all that we do, all that we create is dana prajna paramita translated as giving prajna paramita, the wisdom of crossing over, quote, the true wisdom of life, which is that in every each step of the way, the other shore is actually reached. This is a path of the bodhisattva progressing through countless dharma gates, practicing upaya, skillful means to reduce suffering and inspire enlightenment. It is an ideal vision as well of the artist, in which rather than presenting a vision of the unity and perfection that underlies constant change and transformation, she acts in concert with it to add aid all living beings. Of course, a work of art that does this may indeed be an instrument of enlightenment. And so may the production of the cook, who turns raw ingredients into a nutritious confection, or the musician, whose performance embodies harmony and unity in constant motion or the work of a writer who takes us inside the mind and life of another and so breaks, as Kafka put it, the frozen sea within us. And I could say the frozen sea between us as well. Mm. But this gift of enlightenment is not limited to any particular profession or act. On December 3rd, 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King gave a speech facing the challenge of a new age at the Holt Street uh, Baptist Church in Montgomery at the opening of the Montgomery Improvement Association Week's Long Institute on Nonviolence and Social Change. There's a famous excerpt from this that, um, that you, I'm sure, have heard, but I want to read it um, because of how it speaks to dignity in labor. And he begins by talking about the necessity of excelling at whatever you do. If you're a professor, if you're a professional, it is extremely important that you excel at, at what you do, and that this is part of nonviolence, actually. 
<laughs> Whatever your life's work is, do it well. Even if it does not fall in the category of one of the so-called big professions, do it well. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. This suggests that when someone mentions unskilled labor, we should see what we should think about what skills are actually being referred to. And of course, he's speaking about doing a good job sweeping, but he's also speaking about the skill of paying attention to what you're doing, of giving it value, of giving it worth, no matter what it is. And this is a Dharma gate. So you're at a moment of choice where, where you can be distracted, you can do whatever, you can listen to the radio while you're doing this and talking to a friend, but if you're not, then perhaps you have a way of um, actually communicating something very powerful, both to yourself and to whoever else might be around. Upaya, skillful means, entails the flexibility to respond appropriately to the situation, whatever it may be. Allen Ginsberg um, describes the work in a poem titled Memory Gardens. Um, in his collection called The Fall of America, which was published in um, 1972. It's an interesting book because it was actually the product of uh, tape recordings that he made with a tape recorder that Bob Dylan gave him um, in the early, well, in the mid-60s to to, uh, travel with and record his his thought. And that's turned into this very long uh, poem, book-length poem, really, um, that includes um, this uh, lovely separate poem called Memory Gardens, which is about his experience of um, traveling to making a trip to um, the um, burial of um, Jack Kerouac, um, who had died, um, and um, experiencing that event with a very small group, his partner, Peter Olofsky, Gregory Corso, and uh, Robert Creeley, Uh, really kind of great gathering of poets to honor uh, a wonderful writer and poet and uh, Buddhist uh, who unfortunately came to a, a very difficult end in his life. And at the time he died, he was actually estranged from all of them uh, and Ginsburg particularly. Um, but anyways, after, after meditating on this in his text, lovely kind of description of the travel and the fall and, and the city and the country uh, and being with his friends and the gravesite and uh, reflecting on Kerouac and as a lover and as a friend in the remote past, he writes, uh, he concludes kind of resolutely, um, well, while I'm here, I'll do the work. And what's the work? To ease the pain of living everything else, drunken, dumb show. And I think that um, is a lovely um, reflection on um, the work that we have to do um, and the way in which Upaya um, responds um, to, uh, responds appropriately. So uh, his poem is not only just about that, but it's, it's something that can be experienced and reflected on by others who have known people who were wonderful and inspirational and then fell. Um, and the kind of inspiration that, that endures um, despite that. And finally, on the work to be done, I want to remind us of the, um, 
the wonderful uh, story that concludes the Genjo Koan. Um, and this is Kaz Tanahashi's translation. Uh, Mayu Zen master Bauche was fanning himself. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent and there is no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of the wind is permanent, may you replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of it reaching everywhere? Asked the monk again. Mayu just kept fanning, fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. So you do the work that needs to be done and hopefully you do it with your whole heart and your whole mind. And if the wind is needing to be through you, then that's how you proceed. Anyways, thank you for listening. And I'm very curious to hear what you think. Thank you, Levi, uh, for a very fine talk, uh, very illuminating talk. Wade, maybe you could uh, help me call on people. Uh, raise your hand whenever you want to offer comment, question, response, please. Yeah, um, Wade. Sorry. Hey, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm the Wade half. Of the okay, right. Uh, oh, I was curious. Um, I found it interesting what you were talking about, alienated versus non-alienated mm -hmm. work. Because uh, I think a lot of us these days, you know, a lot of people in America are doing work that might traditionally be considered alienated work. I, The two of us, for instance, we sit behind a computer all day poking buttons online um, and making bits of electricity move differently than how they had been moving. And that's, that's about all we can show for it at the end of the day. Um, but I don't feel alienated from the work that I'm doing, uh, which has, has not always been the case. For instance, I, I found it to be much less rewarding when I was a gardener doing that work, which I think most people would, would think that would be the other way around. And perhaps there was a different way of gardening that I could have been doing to, for that to be different. But I don't know, perhaps you could say more about that. That's not a question. It's just, sure. well, it's, interesting. it's a nice, it's a good comment. And actually it allows me to elucidate something that, that might be not clear in my talk, which is when I was describing kind of the, the evolution of work um, from its kind of more natural setting with its surround that that is um, living, right? A living surround, so that we we know that what we're doing is related to life itself, and it's it's taking life and it's using life, and it's promoting life. Um, and what replaces that is the machine. But the beauty of the argument of that paper that I mentioned is that what replaces the nature that's outside is the inside nature. That is the intent with which you're doing something. And that can be simply the, it can be partly just the beauty of, of facilitating, of, of working the, the, the text or, you know, writing the code or whatever so that it functions, 
um, so that it becomes not just a, a mess or an inoperative system, but a system that can be used. That's making something that people can use. And, and it's a skill that very few people, relatively speaking, have. So that um, I think the enlightening, the most enlightening aspect of, of that, and the reason I included it, was that it, it shows us that, as I said, the, the, the emphasis on the work is, is shifted completely from the whatever work it is to the way in which you do it. How do you approach it? What is your intention with regard to it? And you can be a prison guard and be absolutely instrumental as a bodhisattva in the context of a prison, or you can be a monster. And the same applies with just about any kind of job. You can be an enlightened professor who helps his students, her students, um, and um, is available and shares knowledge, or you can be one who hoards it and who uses it as a tool to extract whatever they want from people as an instrument of power. Um, And um, so it can be any kind of work can can be um, helpful, beneficent, beneficent, or it can be deeply destructive. And it's interesting, you know, Freud valorizes work um, in um, the future of an illusion. He talks um, to, to some length about work and um, and he valorizes work because it connects people with reality and with relationships. And it is a kind of, it can be a sublimation. And of course he, he's not stupid. He qualifies this and he says, you know, if it's work you willingly choose and that you can kind of place in the context in your life. Um, so the, the, um, that caveat is something that distinguishes Freud's understanding of work within a particular era. He's a haute bourgeois, to say the least. Um, I mean, he wasn't super rich, but he was well-to-do. And his wife managed servants in the household. And he was he worked at home so he could see his his children. And he actually was a very good father. You know, all of that, that pertains. Um, but, um, but the nature of work now has um, broken down a lot of barriers and boundaries um, with COVID so that people work from home, they work at whatever hours um, they choose to often, um, or, you know, and, and that can be good. I mean, I know there are people that, um, and I know a number of them who um, are working in professions that involve um, extensive use of the internet, who have really argued that they don't have to be in the office um, more than half of the time. And they really love being at home. Um, and this is particularly true of people who, you know, are raising families and have children, but it's true of other people as well. So um, we can't control necessarily the way things develop. Um, in fact, I'm not sure we can control it at all. You know, I mean, in a very narrow way, we can. We can react to it. We can react positively or negatively. But ultimately, we want to react in the service of a kind of enlightened upaya where we do what's skillful, where we do what can um, um, really um, lessen the suffering uh, of people in the world. And if we can do that, then no matter how bad the situation is, we're acting as bodhisattvas. Um, And there's a kind of egotism to thinking, well, nuts, I'm not able to fix the world, you know, I mean, obviously, you're not able to fix the world. (laughs) Who said you could, you know, you're saying you can, no, you can't. But, but it's, you know, Dharma gates are boundless, right? 
I mean, our, we say this all the time. We say it every time we meet. And to not understand the nature of that pledge, the extremism of it, and the beauty of it in that it lands us right back in life. You know, it's like right back here, next Starmagate, show up. I'm going to do my best, you know? So it's the same thing with COVID. And I think the more we can um, share that feeling that these things, these things are, are survivable, we'll be okay. And you just have to think about the past, you know? I mean, World War II was no picnic. The Depression was no picnic, you know? Uh, being in Cambodia in year one was no picnic. I mean, there, there are lots of really horrible, um, but there are lots of other places in the world right now where it's a really bad place to be. Um, so we're very, very fortunate. And hopefully we can use that, that fortune, that good fortune um, to what, to the best effect. Um, so anyways, thank you. I talked too much, but thanks a lot for the, the comment. Uh, so great to see you. It's so been such a long you. time. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm going to have to listen to your talk a few more times before I absorb it all because it was a lot. Yeah. Um, one thing that came into my head uh, is that a few years ago, my daughter gave me as a gift a gigantic bath towel that if you hung it one way, it said, work hard. And if you turned it around the other way, it said, hard work. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I taught my child? <laughs> and um, it was actually a moment of reflection on that very question in our family. We all love work. It was sort of our deepest pleasure and the work would be, she's an artist, mm-hmm. you know, whatever our work was, was hard and, you know, demanding and constant and stressful and and never ending and on and on and on. But it was the thing that was our lie. That was the way we viewed being in this world mm-hmm. and uh, so I don't know <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a I don't have a uh, brilliant comment on it except that I do think work is something for us to think about for us to um, it's it's an important part of how we how we are. So thank you for raising all these questions. I have hundreds of questions that I was like jotting down as you were talking. So another time, another <laughs> time we can we can talk more. I mean, it'd be great to talk. And and thank you for for making your comment. I it's, it's, so. Do you still work hard? Yeah, of course. It's all it's all I do. I, yeah. I like I like I, I actually I, I was going to start out by saying. I'm retired. You're retired. We have not stopped working for a second. What would that mean? It's just like shift your attention to another kind of 
really important work. And maybe you could even shift to even more important work. You have a little more freedom to shift to more important work. Of course. Yeah. I mean, life is work is, is what our life is, right? It's certainly an important part of it. You know, Tygen yesterday mentioned play as well. And I think play is really important. And, and in some, I think in truly, um, you know, skillful upaya work does become a kind of play um, because it allows you to engage, you know, with people in a helpful way, which is kind of your mission. <laughs> it's the purpose to be there. Right. Um, my mother-in-law was a good example of this um, in that she loved to do things for people. Um, and I mean, up, right up to the point where she couldn't do it anymore. She was, you know, she'd try to get out of the chair to make pasta for her son or something, you know, because, because that's what her job was, you know? Um, and as I said, her not being able to, uh, do the volunteer work that she did was deeply, um, troubling to her and limiting for her. Uh, and she would offer to darn my sweaters and stuff. I mean, it was unbelievable, you know, um, example of somebody who, who, um, you know, felt that, um, kind of the opposite of, you know, idle hands do the devil's work. I mean, it was like busy hands do, do good. (laughs) The angels work. Right. I mean, at the same time, I've been reading so much about, uh, slavery in this country Mm -hmm. and work that was extracted at such a, Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, I don't even have language for the uh, uh, abomination of that. Yeah. That 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 was work where human beings were not uh, <laughs> not not allowed to be human beings. Anyway, that's another topic. Anyway, I'm oh. going to go on mute because I'll talk too much. <laughs> well, that's okay. We just talked about how great work is, so it's good to talk about when work is is monstrous and yeah. um, dehumanizing and torture. And um, the conditions of slavery were, in every single way, um, extraordinarily trying and demeaning and uh, purposefully dehumanizing. And what is extraordinary is how many. Um, people who lived under slavery persevered, um, their faith strengthened, um, effectively the, their mainstay probably, but uh, raised children, raised now, you know, they have maybe great-grandchildren that they're, they don't know about, but, but that um, are in, are part of our society. Um, and that heritage is, um, now becoming more well understood, better understood by more people um, and justly um, venerated and, um, and uh, even celebrated. Um, it is a very dark period of our, of our history and something that is not easily uh, transcended, but except for the fact that as Americans, we embrace um, everyone who comes to our country. Uh, and we embrace their experience as well as being uh, experience that that is valuable um, to our common wheel. So in that sense, um, they, the, the gift of um, their gift to us of, of persevering is something that um, that we have to remember, you know, in the context of of that kind of labor. 
thanks, Levi, for all these great comments. Ed has something good to say. Yeah, uh, thank, thank, thanks, Levi. I have to say that my favorite job that I ever had was by accident because I was a dock worker at the Ace Distribution Center at Damon and Clybourne. It's torn down now. Uh-huh. And these boxcars would roll up from Alabama. Oh, cool. Or from Georgia, filled to the roof with spades or some kind of utensil, and they were not palletized. So, as a dock worker, I would get assigned to empty one of the boxcars, and it would take upwards of two weeks to empty one of the boxcars because you had to take each bundle of spades out individually. And I always thought, why can't they palletize them in Alabama? But they didn't. So, my job was really to palletize them in Chicago. Uh-huh. But the I got, I made I was fired from that job and had to find another one and because I made a smart aleck remark to the floor boss, yeah. not because I was not focused on contributing to humanity at all. <laughs> and the I got this job <laughs> at Lord and Taylor up in Old Orchard Shopping Center in Skokie. Wow! And I don't know if you remember Lord and Taylor, but yeah, for I do. months all I did was put anti-theft tags on chiffon party dresses <laughs> would come in off the trucks. Important work. Well, there were three dock workers on in that Lord and Taylor because it was a business uh-huh. Lord and Taylor. Yeah. And for what we would do is when no one was around, we would put one of the we would put the dresses on and tag each other with fire extinguishers. So yeah. <laughs> that is the time. <laughs> and you know what? I've never had a better job. I mean, we look forward to doing that early every Friday because the chiffon dresses were always more ridiculous as Christmas approached. Yeah. Yeah. It was always more fun the next week. Sure. But I but I would say that, you know, it brought me into a reflection on really what is dignity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> As it relates to work. That's great. That's great. And so, you know, it can be found in the strangest places. Mm-hmm. You know, as a dock worker, there's plenty to be had, I have to tell you. Yeah. So yeah. You. I'm sure of that. Thank you so much for your comment. We have time for one or two more comments or responses or uh, questions for Levi, for for all of us. Well, I'll say something a little bit more about what Ed just said, because I really liked um, the point that he made uh, about dignity and um, the way in which human beings can, can find dignity in their um, collaboration. You know, you, you do it collectively, right? And, and in a horrible situation, you can make a joke. Um, or in a kind of totally boring situation, you can do something unusual. So, so there's the, the, the dimension of humor is um, one that um, I don't think we hear a whole lot about um, when we think about bodhisattvas and all that. But one imagines that bodhisattvas could be hilarious if, if the need was, was that they should be, you know? Um, and sometimes that's, that's what you got to, you can just, you either laugh or you cry, right? And laughing's a lot more fun. So, um, and maybe that gives you a little perspective, um, at the same time. So Ed, thank you for that comment. Uh, my son works for Amazon and he's a manager and he's like becoming an expert on how to improve unloading 
boxes, basically. And uh, I, actually, he's already an expert on that, and he's doing other stuff as well. But even there, he talks about um, the, fast, the really fascinating diversity of people that work for Amazon. It's like the UN, you know. Um, they would literally hire anybody, and they had people who spoke Somali and different languages, you know, to, to kind of train them. Um, and um, and there's, uh, he tells a story about this cl- cafe, coffee clutch of, like, old ladies, who wake up really early in the morning, you know? And so they work from four to nine at Amazon uh, sorting boxes. And they know each other. They've done this forever. They live in Kenosha. They're right nearby. And um, they make about uh, 70 bucks a day doing that. Um, And they work, I guess, three days a week or something. But that gives them an added income that is supplemented by Social Security. Um, You know, they keep it under the, the limit there. Um, and uh, they love getting together, and they're really good at what they do, and they're they're totally content with that job. They don't want more work. They don't want to move up the line. You know, they don't want to become bigger and more important and more powerful. They just want to show up, do the boxes, get the money, and carry on with their lives. Um, and one of the things that Levi, uh, my son, um, has really opened my eyes to is the way in which he, and he's very interested in the way in which um, not only do you have people that want to move up, and that's one thing where you really want to kind of encourage them to improve their skills and move along, because otherwise they just become disaffected. But but you also have people who are really good at doing one thing. And it's okay. They They actually are okay with continuing to do that. They want maybe a regular schedule. They don't want to be doing it from, you know, two in the morning to nine or something, but they, they don't mind that work and they find it. Um, okay. It's not alienating to them. It's actually um, empowering. So we have to be really, really careful. This is where that's that the shift from the form of work to the way in which one is treated to the way in which one um, feels one has agency is really important. It's really important. And, um, and it's something that actually the better run companies are very, very interested in. They are not interested in running through employees. They have to train them, retrain, retrain, you know, the same position over and over. They're much more interested in, in making it work. So one of the things that we have in this country that I, I wish we could kind of focus on is, is really drawing out, not just the disasters and the failures and, and all of that, which which need to be revealed. I'm not saying that they don't, but also the way in which they're being responded to. Um, because, you know, right now my, my wife's volunteering for the Red Cross and there's 70 separate disasters going on right now that the Red Cross is trying to respond to, including places like Louisiana, where, where in, in uh, Huma, you can't even get there. Uh, there's no power, there's no water, there's nothing. You know, I mean, except for a few, some people who didn't leave, um, who are wondering why nobody's showing up to help them. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of work out there. Um, and it's something that can connect us to each other. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate your your comments and, and your your um, I look forward to to hearing more anyways. Um, uh, uh, Levi, just one of the things you're saying um, brought something to mind. You were talking about loading boxes or unloading. Yeah. You know, and Ed was talking about working on pallets. Yeah. Uh, there's something about work that is uh, that you know is 
mechanical and menial maybe, but that has rhythm. Mm-hmm. And so there's, so you don't have to try and do something more. I, I can relate to that from some of the jobs I've had uh, w- working at uh, Tassahara Bakery. We're doing the, just doing the, uh, putting out the dough and, mm-hmm. and, and putting stuff on it and shaping it and, or, or even working in the front in the rhythm of serving customers very quickly. Yeah. Uh, there's a rhythm to, to that kind of work, which is, which in and of itself is really satisfying. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of what we think of as menial manual jobs ha- have that and one can enjoy that. So just, you know, there's a, there's a kind of play to it. Ed was Absolutely. I was going to say that it is like play and it's like, um, like sports, you know, there's a lot of repetition in sports and you get good at it and you're kind of thrilled with able, with being able to hit that ball, you know? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's very much the same sort of area. Human beings are, are very interested in the way they can, um, you know, um, respond and, um, understand things in a way that makes it meaningful for them. Uh, and we, we make a mistake when we underestimate their ability to do that. We can help them do it, but we, we don't want to underestimate their ability. So, yeah. If I may, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I think it's getting to time to uh, wrap it up, uh, do our closing chant and, and then announcements. But if anybody else has something else they want to say, uh, we have time for one more. Anyone? Okay, wait if you could do our uh, closing for Bodhisattva Vow chant. 